Well, this morning, uh, we're continuing a sermon series that we've been in for a number of weeks now uh, on the life of Joseph, this young man uh, who's experienced so much of life, uh, born the favorite son of his father, uh, sold into slavery by his brothers, now uh, sent to prison and lifted up out of prison to actually, by the time we pick up in our story today, uh, we see Joseph. Uh, ruling at the right hand of Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. We've seen in this story the way that God works through our suffering and through the pain of this life to bring his redemption, to bring his reconciling grace uh, to the world. And so this morning we will be in Genesis chapter 42. If you are willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Technology. Genesis 42. When Jacob found out that the grain was for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you keep looking at each other? I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go there and buy some for us so that we won't starve to death. Ten of Joseph's brothers went to buy grain in Egypt. Jacob wouldn't send Joseph's brother, Benjamin, with the other brothers because he was afraid that something would happen to him. Israel's sons left with the, other with the others who were going to buy grain because there was also famine in Canaan. As governor of the country, Joseph was selling grain to everyone. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed in front of him with their faces touching the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he acted as if he didn't know them and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from, he asked them. From Canaan to buy food, they answered. Even though Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him. Then he remembered the dream he had once had about them. You're spies, he said to them, and you've come to find out where our country is unprotected. No, sir. They answered him, we've come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We're honest men, not spies. This is God's word, and it's given us to us in truth. You can be seated. All happy families are alike. But each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That's uh, Leo Tolstoy, uh, the opening line of Anna Karenina, one of the great opening lines of, of literature. All happy families are happy, uh, but every, un every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Um, you know, I think we're prone uh, at times to think that's true. We look out and we see uh, all these seemingly happy families, and we think, oh, well, they're, they're, their families are just kind of generically happy. Everything seems to be working out just fine for them. They don't have the burdens that we know ourselves to carry. But every unhappy family, our own broken families, we believe are unique and, and kind of somehow broken in a way that the other families aren't. You know, it's, I know it's uh, probably not wise to disagree with Tolstoy, uh, but I do think that there's, uh, it's not quite as cut and dry as he makes it out to be. That life outside of Eden, after the fall, every family, is both happy and unhappy at the very same time. 
right? After Eden, there are no unbroken families. All of us come from a broken home. All of us know brokenness in the midst of our family life. We all know what it's like. You know, um, we, stay up, we stand up here every time we do a baptism. If you've seen us stand with a family in that moment of joy and hope as we bring a baby uh, to be baptized into the covenant family, and almost every time we do it, I say something. I say, we believe that God works through families. Right? We believe that. We believe that God has ordained the family and that God does work through families, through mothers and fathers and grandparents, passing down their faith to the next generation. We believe that God works through families. But if you read the Bible carefully, I think there's another truth that's just as true and probably more unsettling which is that God's enemy, Satan, also works through families. That sin works through families. That one of the, the strategies of sin is to bring brokenness where God's design was for us to experience intimacy and joy. Right after the fall, all of us know tastes of the happiness and joy and love that we're meant to have in our families with our spouses, with our children, with our siblings, with our cousins. We all, know, we all know that, but it's always mixed, right? Intimacy and estrangement always kind of working together, shadow and light in our families, right? It's all over the pages of the scriptures that sin infiltrates the family, right? The very first murder in the Bible was the result of sibling rivalry, one brother killing his brother, and then when God turns and asks for an account, he says, am I my brother's keeper? Right? As though any biblical answer could ever be anything, but yes, actually, you are your brother's keeper. You are accountable for what happens to your brother. Right? After Noah's family, literally within pages of when they step off the ark, Noah gets drunk and his son makes fun of him somehow for it, and we see family discord. King David, the greatest king of Israel, who was able to subdue nearly every enemy that Israel knew, faced a coup from his own son, Absalom, trying to kick him off of the throne. So God does work through families, but that's only half the story. Sin and brokenness also work through families. You know, when we stand up here and we baptize a baby and we, we say God works through families, I think what we want it to mean is that it works, God works through families the way, God, the way that we want God to work through families, right? That we impart our faith to our children, they grow up and never depart from it, then they, they walk with Jesus and pass the faith on to their children. What we're more hesitant to admit, and even to hope for, is that the way that God wants to work through our families sometimes is redemptively is through us, that it doesn't exactly always follow the script that we want it to follow, where everyone gets along well and every holiday is nothing but, uh, but a Norman Rockwell painting of everybody shiny and getting along, but that God means to send us as agents of his grace that we've tasted into a world of fractured families, into our own fractured and strained family relationships, is his agents of redemptive grace, that's what we see happening here. We see, we've seen God working his grace out in Joseph's life, right? Through the peaks and the valleys, through uh, his descent into the very pit of prison and abandonment, now up to the, to the very throne of Egypt, 
We've seen God working in Joseph's life. Over and over again, we've heard this refrain, but the Lord was with Joseph. God was right there with him, shaping him and molding him. His grace was there in Joseph's life. And now we see through this rather elaborate story, this rather elaborate plot, God working to work the grace that Joseph's known into this incredibly broken family. What would it look like uh, for us to be agents of God's reconciling grace in the midst of our families? What would it take for us to be those kinds of people in our families? That's what we're going to look at this morning. And the first thing that it takes uh, is for us to come to terms honestly with the wreckage that we see around us. Right? It takes us being willing to honestly deal uh, with the mess that we have when we think about our family relationships. You know, the story starts in the first verse. Jacob, uh, the wise old patriarch of the family, learns that there was grain for sale in the midst of this famine. And so he says to his sons, why do you look at one another? Right? He stares at these sons of his who are by now grown adult men with families of their own. Right? These are now men who are heads of their own households. These are men who have their own responsibilities. And it takes their aging father to come to them and say, Guys, we're starving and your families are starving. Why are you standing around doing nothing, staring at one another? Why aren't you, why aren't you doing something? Get out there. Work, try to make better of this situation. And we see in this family... Uh, we see in these brothers standing with their jaws open, not moving, the effect that sin has in our relationships and that it has in our lives is that it paralyzes us. It brings us to a place where we're stuck and we don't think we can do anything. Right? Imagine how low the threshold of trust must have been between these brothers. Right? They already knew that they were the kind of brothers who would abandon their younger brother uh, because they didn't like him, uh, because they wanted to make some money on him, they sold him into slavery, right? If you've already let that kind of betrayal and sin into your network of relationships, how would you cooperate on anything else, right? I'm not going to follow those guys to go to Egypt uh, to try to find grain. There's no, there's no platform of trust. There's no intimacy. There's no feeling that they could move forward in their relationships. No sense that they could cooperate together for the good of their family. So, Rather comically, they're just standing around staring at each other, absolutely stuck in the mess that they've made of their relationships. Where do you feel stuck in your family relationships? Right? What is it? I, I don't know all of your families, but I know enough of your families uh, to know that you're stuck, to know that there's topics in your family that you just don't avoid, I mean, that you just avoid. Right? Yeah, no, no, we can all get along great over Thanksgiving dinner as long as nobody mentions blank. Right? Maybe it's the standard list of politics and religion. Right? Maybe you also add nobody mentions our cousin that's not here, our brother. Maybe it's not mentioning the way that we treat one another in certain situations or the way that we handled the inheritance when it came to us. But I don't, I don't know where the contours of all of your family stuff is. But I know enough of you, and I know just enough of life in the world, to know that we all have this. We all have things in our families, places where we just feel paralyzed. 
Places where distance and estrangement has, has crept in. Relationships where we wish were closer, but we don't know how to get them any closer than they are. Relationships where there's been real sin that's been perpetrated against one another. But we're, we don't know who's going to make the first move. We don't know how to move towards one another to bring any kind of reconciliation. And so like Joseph's brothers, like Israel's sons, we stand there, paralyzed, stuck, unable to move forward as a family. Well, Joseph, uh, the other side of this broken relationship, Joseph wasn't stuck, right? Joseph, to all appearances, was anything but stuck. He had left this family in his rearview mirror years and years ago, right? The story that, that we come into today is more than 20 years after Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. He was betrayed at 17. By this point, he's, he's at least 37, maybe closer to 40. He's a successful man. He's got a wife. He's got children. He's, he's again, the, the prime minister of Egypt, one of the most powerful people in the world. I wonder how Joseph talked about his brothers. Maybe, you know, when, when his wife, when he's first meeting his wife and they're sitting over, maybe, maybe this isn't a first date conversation. Maybe this is they've been, they've been dating for a while. I don't know how it worked. Maybe they've been, you know, maybe they're already married. And she says, hey, Joseph, do you have siblings? I've never met them. How did Joseph narrate that story? No, I don't, I don't have brothers. Don't ask. Or maybe, yeah, I did. I haven't seen him in 20 years. This is what they did to me. I'm never going to see him again. Right? Joseph's a man who's packed up his past, who's stuffed his skeletons in his closet, and he's left it in his rearview mirror as he moves on with his life, moving towards success, moving towards affluence, thinking that he can get by without dealing uh, with these things, with these broken relationships. You know, and I think most of us feel like we're probably in one of those two places with some of the brokenness in our families. Either it's all we can think about and we're paralyzed by it and we're stuck in it. Or like Joseph, we say, you know what, I'm not going to be defined by those things. I'm going to pack my luggage and I'm going to get as far away from my mom and her craziness, my dad and his dysfunction, my siblings and their greed or whatever it is. I'm going to leave them in my rearview mirror. And the thing that we see about God is that rarely in our lives, is God uh, comfortable with us leaving the broken parts behind? Right? God isn't the kind of God who likes to let us stuff our skeletons in our closet and move on with our lives. Right? Ezekiel 37, what does God do with skeletons? Right? He drags them out into the valley of dry bones and he breathes new life into them. He breathes resurrection into them. Right? God doesn't want us to plaster over the hard parts of our story to ignore the most difficult relationships in our lives. God wants us to dare to hope that he might actually redeem them, that he might actually use us somehow to work to bring new life and healing into our families. Right? God has worked this incredible scheme, this incredible almost conspiracy uh, to bring these brothers back together. Right? The, the older brothers... You know, when the dad asked, why aren't you going to Egypt? Right? They, they didn't know where Joseph was. They didn't know what had become of him. But they're resisting this, this movement that the whole world now, the whole known world under this famine is having to go to Egypt to find grain. And so I don't know, in God's purposes, he uses this famine 
to bring these brothers together. He takes Joseph's uh, desiring to put them in the rearview mirror. You know, it strikes me that the whole time, the, the brothers didn't know where Joseph was. But Joseph knew where to find the brothers if he had ever wanted to deal with it. Right? We know that Joseph wanted to be with his father. That becomes clear. We know that he wanted to see Benjamin, the baby brother, that had nothing to do with this. And Joseph knew the address. Right? He knew where to go to find them. And yet he avoided it. And yet God takes this position of power that he's put Joseph in in this position of need that he's put the brothers in, to work this redemptive scheme where he brings them back face-to-face -face with each other, where they have to deal with one another. You know, I don't know what it is in your life, but so, it seems like in all of our families, something comes up where we're forced to deal with one another. Right? Maybe it, maybe it is that Christmas dinner or that Thanksgiving where you know, oh, goodness, my brother's going to be there and I haven't talked to him all year. Or, man... My aunt's going to be there, and I know that she's, she's harboring this anger. Or, man, I'm going to have to deal with my, my child who's walked away from the faith, and, and how do we, will they even want to deal with Christmas and all that comes with that? Right, I know that, but God has this way of wanting to bring us together, not to make us miserable, right, not to, not to see how much pain we can endure, but because he wants to bring us close enough to allow us to work redemptively through some of the stuff that we need to do. And so we have to come to a place uh, where we own the wreckage of our lives. You know, uh, it's interesting that Joseph uh, sees them and recognizes them immediately. But the brothers don't recognize Joseph. And this is the irony that, that's at play for the next several chapters. There's this gap between Joseph's place and the brothers. Joseph has all the power, they have none. Joseph sees things clearly and honestly, and they're in denial. Right? First, they don't see Joseph clearly. I mean, to their credit, he's 20-something years older. He would have been dressed, the Semitic peoples, people like Joseph's family, often wore their beard long, and they were a hairier uh, people. Uh, Egyptians, the custom, especially at the royal level, was to be completely clean-shaven. When you see the pictures of Egyptians, they have shave, shaved heads, no body hair. So Joseph would have been styled like an Egyptian, so you can't, so in some ways, of course, they didn't recognize him. But more deeply, it shows something that these brothers are living with a blindness. They don't see reality for what it really is. And of course, we see that uh, nowhere more clearly than in verse 11. Really, one of the more ironic uh, and kind of tragically funny passages in the Bible. Joseph's accused them of being spies, pretending he doesn't know them. And they say to him, we are all sons of one man, and we are honest men. We are honest men. Now, you know, there was this one thing. It, it's probably so small, it's not worth mentioning. But one time we had this younger brother, and then we threw him in a well, faked his death, lied to our dad, and sold him into slavery. But other than that, and nobody's perfect, and other than that, by and large, we've been honest guys. We are honest men. Imagine what it would have done to Joseph when he heard, we are honest men. We are honest men. No, you're sociopaths, <laughs> right? You not, only, you not only abandoned me, tried to kill me, but now you don't think there was anything wrong with that? You think you're honest men? No. And so there's this gap where Joseph sees things as they really are. Joseph sees right through them immediately. 
He sees the brokenness. He sees their denial. He sees their sin in a way that they're blind to, in a way that they can't. You know, and oftentimes in our families, the way that God begins to work his grace, the way that God begins to work towards redemption and reconciliation is that somebody gains insight into the family, insight into the way that the family works, into the way that the family sins against one another. Right? Maybe it's you. Maybe, you're, maybe you came to faith and your family, you weren't raised in a family that, that lives in the faith. And you started reading the Bible and you learn what love is and you learn how love is supposed to work and you learn how families are supposed to work. And you start reading the book and looking at your family and you go, man, there is a, there is a massive gap between what the scriptures say I should have experienced in my family and what I did experience. And you've got insight there. Maybe you got married and your spouse, the first time she, he or she uh, met your family, that ride home from family dinner, she goes, do they always do that? Do they always talk to you that way? Do they always relate to one another? You know that's not normal, right? Right? God has a way of knitting new members into our family so that somebody with an outside eye goes, hey, y'all are nuts, and you need to, you need to deal with this. You can't, you can't talk to each other like that. You can't work through things like this. So maybe it's a new member coming into the family that brings some insight. Maybe you, through some stuff in your own life, you've gone to counseling, right? Or maybe you've come through a program like the City Rescue Mission where you start to do some counseling and look at your own life. And you gain some insight into the way that your family is dysfunctional, into the ways that they operate in ways that aren't healthy. Insight is often the beginning towards reconciliation and healing. Now, insight in and of itself isn't reconciliation, right? Having insight isn't enough, right? It's not enough to get your head filled with the way things should be. I mean, how many, how many young Christians have deeply offended their parents when they said, hey, guys, I read this book, and I got a couple of things I need to tell you about what a terrible job you guys did, right? Or how many, how many parents have heard from their, you know, their, their sons or daughters hey, mom and dad, I've been going through counseling and I think we need to talk. And you just go, oh, God, no, what's this going to be? What have I done? How did I fail you? Right? Insight alone isn't enough to bring people together. In fact, sometimes all that insight does is it, it makes us more bitter towards one another. It makes us more accusatory of one another. It deepens what divides us. And so it has to go further than just having insight. And we see that uh, in Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. In Joseph's forgiveness of his brothers. You know, we don't see their reconciliation in this chapter. We're going we're gonna to keep reading in the weeks ahead, and we're going to see God's work in reconciling this family. But before we see reconciliation, when his brothers are still saying, we are honest men, Joseph forgives them. He forgives them. How, how do we know that Joseph forgives them? Look at verse 9. It says, when, as soon as he sees his brothers... Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. You remember those dreams that Joseph had, dreams of the sun and the moon and the stars bowing down between his glorious star, uh, this dream of their sheaves of wheat bowing down before his strong sheaf of wheat, and these images of his brothers falling down before him. And now here he is in absolute power, controlling most of the grain supply of the world, these brothers come before him. They don't recognize him. He recognizes them. He's in a position of absolute power. 
And immediately he remembers the dream. While they're begging him for food, while they're begging him to believe them, he remembers his dream and he sees it coming true. And what does he do? Well, maybe the better question is, what does he not do? We know what old Joseph would have done, right? We know what 17-year-old Joseph, who, who bragged about his dreams to his brothers, would have done. When, he, when the brothers fell down to beg him for food, that Joseph would have said, hey, hey exactly like I told you it was going to be. Here I am on a throne. Here you are groveling. Everything is going according to my plan, right? Everything's working out. So he could have boasted over them, right? Vindictive Joseph, himself in a position of power, confronted with his betrayers, those who sold him into human slavery, would have been absolutely justified to do more than boast over them. He would have been justified to say, take him to prison, right? You know what? Skip prison. Take him to the executioner, right? Joseph is right. He's righteous. He's been vindicated in front of them. And instead of bragging about it, boasting over it, or sentencing them to prison or death, Joseph forgives them. He doesn't reconcile with them yet. We're going to talk about what that entails. But forgiveness, forgiveness is laying down your right to get even, your right to vengeance. And so Joseph, it's actually his forgiveness that allows him to work this plan towards reconciliation. It's his laying down his right to destroy his brothers completely and wipe them off the face of the earth that makes the possibility real for him to work. Now, he does this, this elaborate plan where he makes them leave one brother with him and then to, while they go and get Benjamin, then they bring Benjamin, then he's going to frame Benjamin for theft and he sends them back and all, all in this elaborate plan to get his father and his youngest brother there. And commentators wonder, what's Joseph doing there? Is he punishing them? Is he testing them? Is he just playing with them? And no, he's working this scheme towards reconciliation. But first, it takes forgiveness. You know, I want to talk about this just for, for just a minute, uh, because a lot of us are stuck here, right? A lot of you, uh, a lot of us are stuck wondering, now, what, what is forgiveness and when is it required, right? Do I have to forgive somebody if they don't say they're sorry? Do I have to forgive somebody if they're not willing to work on the relationship? Is forgiveness about them or is it about me? Is it about me being free from bitterness? Right? What is forgiveness? When am I obligated by the gospel to work towards forgiveness? And the way that, the way that I understand these things, the way that I think scripture talks about it, is that forgiveness does not require, doesn't require change, it doesn't require them to say they're sorry enough or work their way out of the doghouse or be repentant enough. Forgiveness, as we've defined it, is laying down your right to get even. It's refusing to get bound up in the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth ethic of the world. Right? Refusing to say, well, if you did this to me, then I'm going to do this to you. If you mean to me, I'm going to be meaner to you. If you say good things to me, I'll make nice with you. Forgiveness is the power of the gospel to break that cycle and to say, no, I'm going to lay down my right to get the last word in, to make sure that you pay for what you've done or feel sorry enough for what you've done. That forgiveness is laying down your vengeance. Now, forgiveness isn't turning your back on justice, right? Forgiveness is trusting God with justice. Forgiveness is trusting God to ultimately deal with sin, 
right? That's, God does a better job with it than we will. God is far less tolerant of sin than we are. God is far bigger and more powerful and wiser than we are. And the only way to break the tit-for-tat ethics of this life is when we, when we say, you know what? I'm going to lay it down. I'm not going to get even. I'm not going to get the last word in. And this is true, I think, on matters both big and small. Right? You can think about this in the, in the most gravest senses of crimes and abuses, that ultimately we do need to lay down our right for vengeance. And this is the dynamic that goes on in the most ordinary and pedestrian arguments in everyday life. Right? I am never more dangerous in my marriage than on the, on the very rare event that I'm right. right? It's like when I'm, when I'm wrong, I'm quick to make up, I'm quick to make up, you know, I'm quick to be humble. But when I'm just convinced that I'm right, when I'm just certain that I'm the one who's seeing this in the right angle, when I'm certain that I'm, that I'm innocent in the thing, man, I am quick to want to twist the knife, just that extra little turn. I'm quick to want to get that extra word in. I'm quick to want to make sure that everybody knows just how right I am in this particular argument. When we know that we're right, when we know that we're righteous, when we know that we're the innocent ones, that's actually when most of us do the most damage in our relationships. It's when we say things that we can't take back that we wish we could. And forgiveness means being quick to forgive, quick to lay down the right of vengeance. Now, for us, that's looking, for, that, that's looking forward to God's day of justice and saying, God, I'm going to trust you because you do justice better than I do. For God, it's the pushing of justice towards the cross. Right, Romans, Paul in Romans 3.25, tells us that in all of the Bible leading up to the, to the cross, in all of those sins that God didn't intervene, right? All the times that somebody sinned grievously against God and he didn't strike them down immediately with lightning, right? It tells us that God in his forbearance left those sins unpunished in order to focus his punishment for sin on the cross. That even God looked over sin, delayed punishment for sin, first to the cross, and then ultimately to his day of justice. But that forgiveness means laying down our right to get even. And Joseph does that. But Joseph doesn't pretend that they're reconciled yet. Right? Notice what Joseph doesn't do. So he does make this magnanimous refusal to get even. But what Joseph doesn't do is say, guys, guys, it's me. It's Joseph. Remember me, well, all that? You know, it's me. I'm alive. Here, I'll tell you what, let's leave. I'll, I'll get on the camels with you and we'll go back and we'll see dad again. We can all be one happy family. Right? No, Joseph doesn't do that yet. Why not? Well, because, one, because Joseph's not crazy. Right? He remembers that these are the guys that, that tried to kill him, then sold him into slavery and are now, now denying it. Right? He knows that they're not safe. Right? He knows that they haven't owned their sin. He knows that they haven't come to a place of repentance, to a place of, of genuine sorrow of what they've done and longing for reconciliation. And so there is no reconciliation without repentance. There can be forgiveness, but you can't have real reconciliation, real reunion, coming back together until you know that someone who's sinned against you has repented. Right? Not just said they're sorry, not just kind of superficially owned it, but that they get it. That they go from saying, we are honest men, to saying, oh man, 
we are so not honest. We start to see that turn in verse 21, which we didn't read. But uh, after Joseph tells them that they need to leave Simeon, one of their brothers, behind, they say this. They said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. And that is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now here comes a reckoning for his blood. Verse 23, They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he, that's Joseph, turned away from them and wept. This is the first of three escalating times where Joseph turns away and weeps when he starts to see his brothers softening. Right? They're not yet at a full repentance. Right? They're not yet at, at coming completely clean. But they're starting to soften. They're starting to admit, oh man, this is because of that awful, awful, awful thing we did. They're coming to a place of repentance. And it's that growing sense of repentance that makes reconciliation possible. Right? We have done, uh, the church uh, and others, but I, I know the church, have done great damage when we've encouraged people to seek reconciliation apart from repentance. When we've told people to go back to abusive relationships, We've told people to go back into damaging relationships and say, no, you know what? You need to forgive and make nice, forgive and forget, reconcile. But if there's no repentance, if there's no, if there's no sense that the person has changed or is willing to on, honestly look at what they've done, there really can be no real reconciliation in a reunited relationship. And so Joseph, uh, himself knowing God's grace, launches this scheme to work towards his brother's repentance, to work towards reconciliation with them. How can we do that? How can we work towards reconciliation in our broken families? There's a lot that could be said here, uh, but just shortly, I want to say that what it takes for us is to love our family members in the same way that we are being loved by Jesus. In the same way that we're experiencing God's grace, it means us moving into our broken relationships with that grace. How are we experiencing Jesus? How are we learning about his love? Well, first we learn about his absolute forgiveness. Right? Jesus, how does Jesus deal with me? Right? Jesus has already forgiven me for sins I haven't even committed yet. Right? Jesus forgave me seeing the absolute worst of me. Jesus forgave me uh, long before. He, he blames me for sins I'm actively committing that I don't even know about yet. Right? Jesus, uh, in his love and in his mercy, is so absolutely forgiving that it creates space for us. It's what we say every time we confess our sins in worship. Right? We, can for, we can confess our sins because Jesus is already forgiving, because we know that he'll forgive. We can confess. Right? The, My marriage works because Haley has already forgiven me for the sins that I haven't done yet that are going to hurt her. Her orientation towards me is one of mercy and forgiveness. She doesn't love me because I'm perfect or we would have had a very, very, very short marriage. Right? I've already, as hard as it is, I need to move towards my kids as though I've already forgiven them for the car they're going to wreck when they turn 16, for the curfew they're going to break, for the time they're going to come home with beer on their breath, for the stupid relationship they're going to run into. 
I need to, my, my, my disposition towards my children needs to be one of absolute settled forgiveness. Our dispositions towards our families need to be one where we're, we're, we're safe people to let down. We're safe people to, to wrong because we're just so quick to forgive. And so we're, our orientation, like Jesus, is one of forgiveness. But it's also one that's absolutely committed to fighting against sin. Right? Jesus was never, you know, you can look at his forgiveness and think, well, Jesus was just tolerant of sin. Right? Jesus never met a sin that he was okay with. Right? Whether it was the pride of the religious leaders or the, the brokenness of the prostitutes, the greed of the tax collectors, he was forgiving and he was gracious for them, but he was committed to working to eradicate their sin. And we need to be likewise committed to fighting against sin. Fighting against sin in our own lives, we need to be the first to repent. I mean, there's some of you are listening to this sermon and you go, oh no. I'm the, I'm the one who, who's been just dragging my feet and denying my own, my own guilt in this break, broken relationship, and I need to own it. We need to be committed to fighting against sin in our own lives and committed to fighting against sin in others when we see it. Committed to putting in boundaries, committed to speaking hard truths, committed towards... Uh, even Joseph here is, is innocent as a dove and shrewd as a serpent. Right? He's crafty and creative and working to bring his brothers to a place where they see their sin and so that all together they can throw themselves on the mercy of God. May God shape us by his grace in such a way that we can work his grace in our relationships. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would uh, help us in the midst of this world of broken relationships and broken families that you would help us to move towards those places in our families that we would rather move away from, that you would help us reach out in love when we'd rather curl up in self-protection, that you'd help us to forgive when we'd rather punish, that you'd help us to hope when we'd rather give up. Uh, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would work uh, your divine work of reconciliation in our lives and in our families. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.